Bruce, what do you say? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's great to have you here. Hope you're having a great week. Hope you're having an even better life. Uh, I can't quite believe that this is the fourth episode of this podcast. So thank you so much for listening. And thank you for the great feedback. Um, many of you have sent me great emails with suggestions for people to bring on and, and how to improve the show. Uh, keep those coming to conversations at jonahbacon.com. And of course, you can find the latest episodes at jonahbacon.com slash conversations or your favorite podcasting directory. So I am beyond thrilled to bring on my uh, guest today and friend, Ryan Bethencourt. How are you doing, Ryan? Good, good. Thanks, John. Thanks it, for bringing me on. It's been a while. We actually, we used to work together at Express. We right? did, so, we did, yes. Uh, uh, good, good times down in LA, right? Yeah, good yeah. times, exactly. Apart from the custom hotel in LA, which was yeah. a miserable place Apart to from, stay. It was very isolated. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I want to make it clear to our listeners, I had Emily Musil Church on from XPRIZE last time. This isn't just only people I've worked with that are coming on the podcast, but I, I've worked with some interesting people, yeah. so thank you for coming on. So let me go through the rap sheet of your history, because yeah. um, there's a lot, yeah. and I'm going to summarize this. You've done a ridiculous amount in your career, and, I, and it's pretty inspiring. So, um, so you have a, a master's in bioscience, enterprise, and biotech from Cambridge University, yep. which is you know a non too shabby university, of yep. course. Uh, project management from uh, for biopharmaceuticals from Berkeley. You're you're a PhD candidate at the Center of Regenerative Medicine. So a, a dropout, basically, right? <laughs> <laughs> a PhD dropout. I got in the end. I got there in the end, right? So, you know what? I don't yeah. know. If all the dropouts, that's an okay one to yeah. have. Okay. Uh, degree in biological science from the University of Warwick. You're also an undergrad research student at Yale. Yeah. Um, CEO and co-founder of Berkeley Biolabs, uh, which is a, a, a biomaker uh, space and an incubator. And today you're running, you're the CEO of Wild Earth. Yeah. Um, and we're going to get onto this a little bit later on because you also went on Shark Tank recently. Yes, which I, I think did. I did. Some, of, some people who are listening to this will have probably seen that. So... When I look at your history, yes, uh, and it's not just this, but you're an advisor to a ton of biotech and tech firms yeah. as well. There's this intersection between um, uh, biosciences and technology yeah. and entrepreneurship. Yes, what is the driver? Like, why are you interested in this specifically? We're sat in this amazing facility that you just moved into in Berkeley. Yes. It's huge. There's yes. so much work that you're doing. Yeah, why this? So, so one of the things, one of my big drivers is a combination of science technology and business. I think that business is probably one of the most powerful forces on this planet. Right. Um, and I think we're, we're really lucky to live in a time where we can actually have an idea, yeah. pitch it to people, and actually get it funded and try and build it. Right, exactly. Right? And we're, 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 we're lucky enough to be in Silicon Valley, but thankfully, uh, we're now starting to see startups all over the world, which is something I'm really excited about. Uh, innovation is, is being distributed finally uh, to, to everywhere around the world, right? right? So not just Silicon Valley, not just LA, not just New York, not just Boston, but Shanghai, Buenos Aires, right. uh, you know, Manila, like it's everywhere, London, you know, so, so we're yeah. starting to see it everywhere. And so for me, the, the common thread and actually something that I partially grew up in the UK, I have an American accent, I was born in the US. Right. That's why I like you. Yeah, there we go, we get along, right? <laughs> so I'm a fellow, fellow Brit, right, right. as well, and as American, yes. Uh, uh, but in the UK, um, you know, I, I studied the sciences, and one of the things that really drove me was 
science fiction. I think many of us are science fiction fans. Yes. Uh, and uh, I could, in my mind's eye, I could see the future in many of the science fiction books from the classics like Robert Heinlein to Isaac Asimov right, to right. some of the more recent books like Richard Morgan's Altered Carbon, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, really interesting yeah, book. Yeah, fascinating. Right? Uh, uh, by the way, the book's way better than the series. Sorry, Richard Morgan, if you're listening. Right. <laughs> but, it, but it always is, right? Yeah, it always is. <laughs> so, so for me, um, one of the biggest drivers that I've personally had is as a scientist who became an entrepreneur, mm. and I view myself as a technologist as well, mm. um, I was very inspired by the technology leaders that came before, right? Yep. So, I mean, obviously, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and some of the lesser known figures like a Andy Grove, the founder of Intel, you know, there's some incredible leaders um, that basically had an idea, a concept, created it, and drove humanity forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and when I read science fiction, I was like, actually, I'm a biologist. How can I help with this? Mm. And at the time when I was studying bio, biology, biotech, uh, information technology was accelerating, and it became very clear that biology and information technology were going to merge. Right. Right? And, and I was... You know, I'm very thankful that I exist in the time when we were about to sequence the human genome. We did. Yeah. You know, yeah. now... Two decades later, we know a lot more about us, yep. uh, the, the book of life. Right. Not only do we have incredible technologies like CRISPR, yep. we can actually program life, yeah. right? which is amazing. And, and it, it's, part of it is basic science discoveries. The other part of it is um, the tools that we have, the information technology tools, the, the, the hardware, the software that we have that make it all possible. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, one thing I think is particularly interesting here is in, you know, we, see, we, we hear a lot on the news about about innovation on the web, right? So yeah. we, if, you've got a, if you've got a couple of smart people, a couple of laptops in the cloud, you, it enables people such as you know, Zuckerberg to be able to come up with world-changing technologies, yeah. right? Um, but obviously in your line of work, that's way different. Because yeah. as, we were, as I walked in here, you were showing me your labs, for yeah. example. Yeah. There's a lot of capital investment in this. So how for do sure. people get started in this? Because it's not as simple as just having a laptop and getting no. going, right? No, no, no. So that's, that's probably a mission I've been on personally for over a decade. Right. Uh, I helped start what's called the biohacker movement. Yeah. Uh, that's not uh, drinking uh, tea, uh, coffee with butter. Right. But that's literally <laughs> like using, using uh, cheap robotics, uh, to reprogram DNA and various other things. And so uh, a lot of people are not so familiar with what happened after 2008, the Great Recession. Right. Uh, a lot of biotechs went bust. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. I'm one of those people. Okay, so there we go. So, give us an overview. Yeah, what so, happened so after 2008, 2008 uh, a lot of biotechs went bust. It was the Great Recession. A lot of tech companies went bust too. Yep. What ended up happening was these, like, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars of equipment were just being essentially disposed of. Oh. Uh, so, so many of us were able to buy like six foot long lab, lab robots to make develop therapeutics for like pennies on the dollar. Ah. So what ended up happening is that myself, so biologists like myself and computer programmers, hackers, hence the term biohacker, right. um, we started to get together in, in hacker spaces and go, hey, we can now do science inexpensively. Why don't we try and do that? Right, and we hearken back to the original days of science, where it was it was an amateur profession, yeah, right, amateur pursuit. Right, right, right. Um, and so, so we started to do science, and where people had told us we couldn't do science. So back then, and and actually still to this day, in many places, you're told that if you can't raise millions of dollars, you can't do science. Right, that's just nonsense. Right, right, like you can do science, and pretty much anywhere on your kitchen table. Um, but and do you, do you need a credit crunch? 
to do it today? I mean, it, it, like you've got that equipment, uh, yeah. obviously much cheaper. Like yeah, yeah. How, I mean, how would that work so, today So find, find a biohacker space. Now there are many got it. community spaces, similar to hacker spaces, where you can get access to, to basic uh, tools of biology. Right. So uh, an incubator, um, some reagents, some liquids, some lotions and potions that you can actually use to make uh, to do biotech. Oh, cool. To like cut DNA, to insert DNA. So now it's getting to the point where we're uh, uh, kind of uh, an excited amateur or uh, a professional for thousands of dollars can do biotech versus millions of dollars a couple of years back. That's interesting. Do you think it's kind of, you know, like in the early days of computing, people yeah. would use these big mainframes, these time-sharing machines, and you'd go in there for your hour, you'd run your program, you'd see if it worked, you'd come out. It sounds almost like these these biohacking spaces are a similar kind of principle in the fact that you go in there, you do get a slice of time where you can where you can do some work and then you got to get out and then somebody else comes in after you. Is that yeah, pretty of, much. So right. so basically, there are different flavors of those models. So right. we've thankfully now um, over the last decade we've evolved those models. So there's everything from like just a fun amateur space, like a biohacker space, like Counterculture Labs or right. BioCurious uh, for those in the Bay Area or Gen Space in New York right. and various other biohacker kind of fun amateur spaces that are very basic, right. all the way through to much more professional spaces like the Berkeley Biolabs, which I co-founded, or a group called QB3 here in San Francisco. Right. Um, so, so where you basically have a bench that you rent for about a, uh, oh, between one to two, one to $3,000 a month, and then you have access to all the tools and equipment oh, you need. So it's like the WeWork for? It's a WeWork for biology. Very cool. Yeah, if you're in LA, uh, Lab Launch is right. also, you can hit up Lab Launch. Um, and so, so basically, we kind of evolved to this point, um, and, and one, I had one frustration. So we were able to help a bunch of amateur scientists and professional scientists who wanted a third space do science, um, but I was on this quest to help scientists become entrepreneurs, um, and I was pitching everyone for money. Eventually, I pitched a venture firm called SOS Ventures. Okay. Uh, we founded IndieBio. Yeah. Uh, this was actually the time I left XPRIZE. I was going to say, yeah, this is your next thing, right? This was my next thing. So, right. so we worked together at XPRIZE. Uh, my next thing, so I, I, was the, um, I was the director for prizes, but I headed up biology and biotech right. for, for life sciences for XPRIZE as well. Um, and um, I just I wanted to help people build. And so we, we co-founded IndieBio, we built IndieBio, we funded uh, 80 biotech companies. So we put wow. 200K in cash, 50K in lab space and co-working space. We built a lab in downtown San Francisco. And uh, at the time, I still remember this, when, when we started IndieBio, people were like, this is insane. Scientists don't want to become entrepreneurs. They just don't. Like, really? Yeah. They don't want to become entrepreneurs. That's why they do science. They want a nice bench oh, and like, some funding. Right. And they want to be left alone to explore Unknown, questions of the unknown. Right. Uh, it turned out there were literally thousands of frustrated scientists who couldn't get the funding to explore the questions they really wanted to answer. Ah. Right. And so um, that turned into a business opportunity. We were the first investors in companies like Memphis Meats, mm. you know, the lab-grown meat company, Finless Foods, uh, Koniku, which uses neurons to do computation, Catalog Technologies, which stores digital data in DNA. You know, all right. of these diverse range, 80 plus companies, regenerative medicine, gene therapy, food, um, biomaterials, pretty much anywhere where biology goes, we went. Right. So not just therapeutics, but everything. Right, right. You know, biology is technology. Yeah, and, of course. And yeah. it became, it was just, it kind of unleashed a whole wave of innovation over the last, that was about six years ago now. Right. Um, but it released a wave of innovation, basically, right. in biotechnology. And how did you 
so was this like a, just so I understand you correctly, was this basically, did people apply to, to people come People applied this? to it. So it was, it, for, those, for those listeners that are familiar with Y Combinator. Right, so it's a Y Combinator. It's a Y Combinator. It was Y Combinator for biology. Right, got right? it. And so. And at the end of the process, did they pitch to VCs and things like that? Kind yeah, of like they with did. Y with a demo day at right. the end. And so, Very yeah, cool. and, and they, you know, it was, where it was different was it was a residential program. So we basically had a lab that we built for the scientists. Right. They were with us for four months to build proof of concept of their science. Right. Right, so that, that unleashed a whole, a whole wave of innovation. Uh, I left to start um, Wild Earth, so I had this vision of future food for our pets. Yeah. Um, I was really inspired by uh, lab-grown meat, by uh, using bacteria, fungi, and plant-based products right. to make healthier food. Um, and so I decided, you know what? No one has built the future of food for our pets. I'm a longtime animal lover. I've been a pet parent for many years. Yep. Um, and and so basically, I was like, I think I'm that guy. Right. And so I went off and I started it. I also stayed uh, an investor through Babel Ventures, which funds consumer biotech. Right. And that's been you know an exploration for the last couple of years where we've gone. So so let's get into Wild Earth a little yes. bit. So um, I was looking on your website, and yes. and I want to I want to read this because I think yeah. it's interesting. It says that a 2017 UCLA study estimated that dog and cat food consumption is responsible for 64 million tons of carbon dioxide per year released in the environment, and that an estimated 30% of all meat in the US is consumed by pets, yes. which is mind-blowing. Totally mind-blowing. Um, so your goal here, from what, from what I understand, mm -hmm. from what you're working on, yeah. is effectively more nutritious, meatless, You've got Perfect, it, right? Yeah, you've got it. Um, one thing I want to get into, first of all, is, I mean, f I, I have no doubt that this will be a valuable product for pets and pet, obviously for pet owners. Yeah. How do you go about building something like that? Like, what does an R&D process look like for creating a product like that? Because it's right. got to be, on Shark Tank, this is something that they kind of poked fun at you a little bit for, was the, was the level of, of R&D. But I imagine you've got to do a ton of R&D when you're messing with people's food. Right? Yeah, yeah, and so, so for those, those of you that have not watched the Shark Tank episode, it was last season, so season 10, uh, where we pitched uh, yeah. Wild Earth. And I definitely uh, want to get into this in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so we'll I definitely just, yeah. dive further into it. Yeah. But there was a moment where they were like, where did you spend all the money? And I basically said, R&D. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they were like, what? So, um, and to be totally honest, I didn't know fully what I was getting into. Right. Um, I thought, I, you know, I thought, okay, developing a, a full, fully balanced, nutritious meal that a dog could survive and thrive on uh, was going to be fairly straightforward. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so used to working in the world of science, right. uh, developing therapeutics, future food products. It turns out that when you have to develop a product that, it, that an animal, that a being can live off of their entire lives, right. uh, it is pretty complex. Right. Um, and so uh, it actually took us a lot longer than I thought. It probably took us about a year longer than I thought. So this is a fully balanced meal. Fully balanced we, meal. Because before we recorded, you were saying you know that the the level of work going into a snack is yes. very different from yeah. a fully balanced meal because it's a lot more comprehensive and complex. It, exactly. Right? So okay. it was pretty relatively easy for us to launch a treats and snacks. Right. So we currently have um, three different treat. Uh, flavors and varieties on the market right now, selling in all 50 states right. and over 100 stores across the U.S. Um, but the hardest part, to be totally honest, was just making sure we had a product we could be really proud of yeah. um, for, for pets. And so um, when, we, when we first started, I had this vision of like, okay, I am pretty certain that the food that our pets eat is not good food, mm. right? Like it, there's a reason why people don't say, people say don't eat dog food because it's not good for humans. Mm. Um, and so I was like, what's actually in that dog food? 
And so I started to look at FDA inspection reports. I started to look at all the recalls that were happening. And I was like, why are we recalling dog food for salmonella? Why are we recalling right. it for euthanasia drug right. in the food of the dogs? That's it crazy. Did, yeah. right? It didn't make any sense to me. I was like, wait, what's, what's wrong with their food? Why is this happening? It turned out that, um, uh, that non-human grade meat is not what you and I would consider meat. It's literally uh, it, it, animals that are turned away from the, the, basically the slaughterhouse because they're too sick. Um, they're called the four Ds. They include downed cows, disabled animals, animals that drop dead in the middle of the field for unknown causes. And this goes into animal. The this goes food? into dog and cat. That's crazy. Food. Yeah, totally crazy. And then on top of that, so Whoa. outside of it being like you know, it's pretty gross, and it, it's not something that any of us who care about our animals would ever eat. No, of course. Um, or or want them to eat. Right. Um, and, and on top of that, then I was like, where's this euthanasia drug coming from? Like, euthanasia drug is literally a drug you give to animals or, in the case of death row inmates, you give them this euthanasia drug to kill them. Right. Right? It probably should not be in food. It should not be in food. <laughs> so, and I noticed that the FDA kind of mentioned, oh, we have a recall because the euthanasia levels are just, the, the drug levels are too high. I'm like, where does that come from? Right. Uh, turns out it's a long story. I, I kind of, looking back, it appears to come from euthanized horses that are finding their way into do dogs and cats' food. You're kidding me. No, and oh. then there's even some rumors that it may come, there was um, someone who was responsible for like the governing body of pet food who's making jokes about Fluffy finding their way into dog food. Right. Literally making jokes that euthanized dogs and cats may be put into pet food because why not, it's meat. Oh, wow. There's, there's a video, I can send you a link to this video. It was an, it's an older video. I, it was just mind blowing, like wait, we might be feeding dogs and cats to our dogs and cats. <laughs> like we know how bad that is from, I mean, it's cannibalism, right? It, I mean, that, that, that's please why we got BSC and all sorts of horrible things. I can't think of how it would get any worse, but please tell me it doesn't get yeah. any worse. Because it's progressively it getting progressively worse. worse. So I started, to look at, I started to look at the FDA inspection. And so this is when I was looking into this and I was like, should I start this company? And I, I was looking into the FDA inspection reports and they were like, oh yeah, there was this incident at this one rendering plant, which is where they take all the meat. Right. Where there were also there's lots of plastic that's been found in the food. Oh great. I, I was like, where does the plastic come? There, so the dogs and cats are eating plastic. We know that that is our carcinogen. Right. right? We know that plastic. You eat plastic. Yeah. It increases your risk for cancer. Right. Especially burnt plastic. Right. Um, which is what's getting into which the food. Which is right. Yeah. Right. Um, where does that come from? Turns out one of the FDA inspection reports found at one of the rendering plants that. The meat that goes off in grocery stores, you know the stuff that's yeah. wrapped in plastic and styrofoam? Yeah. Guess what happens? It gets sent over the rending plants for pets, and apparently what was happening is the people who were working there were not pulling the plastic off and just throwing the whole thing into they the render. They just chucked the whole thing They in. just chucked the whole thing, because they're gonna, they're gonna heat it up and burn it, right? So that, that's what rendering does. It basically takes like this nasty meat stuff, burns it, and, and if you take the plastic off of meat that's gone off, it's a health risk for humans. You might right. actually catch diseases, so they were just keeping it on and putting it into the into the renderer. So I was like, that's where the plastic is coming from. How, how this is probably a difficult question to ask, but how widespread would you say this? Do you think this, these examples are the worst scenario that affects a relatively small amount of, of pet no, food? No, no, I think this is, is this, common. This is very common? So, so all of these things together are common. Individual rendering, like there's some places that have like human grade meat, which is right. a better quality product, that's different. Um, but there, this is a common problem. Uh, about a year, uh, about a year ago, um, shortly after we launched Wild Earth, there was a recall of about 100 million units of of dog food because it had euthanasia drug in it. 
Good grief. 100 million units of dog food. Wow. Right? Okay. That's a lot of dog food that's that got recalled. So <laughs> that's not a small scale thing. I mean, we hear the small scale things that we hear about are like uh, people feeding, uh, actually this came out about two weeks ago uh, from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, right? This right. is not a joke organization. Right. This is an organization that protects us from things like Ebola. Right, exactly. And horrible, horrible things. Uh, like, <laughs> they basically released that they were investigating 45 cases of salmonella that, that uh, pet parents had caught from feeding their dogs pig's ears. Wow. So, so, like, they're getting salmonella from touching the pig's ears and feeding it to their dogs. Okay. Right? So, <laughs> so, uh, so this, is, this is not good. No. Clearly, clearly there is a market opportunity to fix this. And this all seems to be, to your point earlier, yeah. Ryan, most people probably don't know this. No, I it's mean, mind-blowing. We've just got a puppy recently. Yeah. I would be mortified if the food that we were giving him is making him sick. Is, 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 is making him sick. And yeah. I don't know. And uh -huh. how do you check that? Like yeah. you, you would imagine that there would be regulations in, in place for this not to happen, but clearly that's not the case. Yeah, and, and, and there are. So the FDA really does try, but the problem is it's not a very well-regulated industry. And right. so regulation typically comes from within the industry. And so the, the, right. the problem that you, you tend to have is that um, there are always people cutting corners. And so, so it really is upon the company itself to make sure that their food is safe. And sometimes they're reliant on low-cost meat sources. Right. And when you're relying on low-cost meat sources, you don't know where that meat comes from sometimes. So, so how does Wild Earth fix this thing? So you're, 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 this is all lab-grown? Is this lab-grown? So this is not lab-grown. So, well, so there's two elements to this. So um, the first thing, before we even get into the, like, where do we get our protein from, first thing people say is like, okay, well, it's, it's, it's a plant-based dog food, right? People are like, oh, my dog's a carnivore. That, that's actually not true. So dogs are actually omnivores, and it is healthy. So we know that there's data that supports that dogs can survive and thrive on a plant-based diet. Okay. Um, there was an article published in Nature, uh, I think it was 2016 or 2015, that actually looks, looked at the genetics of canines of dogs right. versus wolves, and they found that there were about 10 genes around starch metabolism that were different. Uh, the wolves and dogs, very different. Right. Which is really interesting. So what it, it indicates is that wolves co-evolved with us. Right. Right? During the agricultural revolution. Yeah. They yeah. ate what we ate, basically. Right. Yeah. Well, th th there's, uh, there's been this philosophy as well in, in dog training, right? That there is a, a view that you need to use the threat of pain to teach a dog, whereas that doesn't actually work as a, the, the theory being that that's what you need to do to essentially domesticate this wolf that's yes. living in your house. Yes. Whereas in reality, dogs have been domestic domesticated for thousands of years, right? Yeah, yeah I mean... So I've, the lineage to the wolf, I'm guessing, is relatively... It's there, obviously. It's, right? it's, it's there, it's there. But the thing is, the domestication, we've seen this. People have actually done domestication study on foxes. Right. So they've taken foxes, and they notice that after a couple of generations, the foxes, the foxes' ears get floppy, and they get much more domesticated. They right. get used to hanging out with humans, and they yeah. look for that. Yeah. Right, and so there's a whole there's changes in a couple of genes that we've seen where it's they're like domestication genes. Right, interesting. Right? We, we see that in domesticated animals too. So that's so, so cows and pigs. Interesting. So there's yeah. a is, so you're saying there's a biological yeah change. Yeah, they they are the, evolved to be with us. Interesting. Right, and and by the way, there's a counter argument there too. We are evolved to be with them. Right. Right. So so you know one of the reasons why we have in the U.S. we have seventy percent of households have a pet at home. Right. A little over half of those have a dog at home, mm. and and it's and and there's a, I think there's a reason. I personally have a belief that we co-evolved with dogs 
they are our friends, but we're like we have co-evolved with each other. Right. That's why we miss them. That's why we love them. That's, that's why we care about them. Yeah. They care about us. Right. And no house, well, every single house is improved with a dog. It, totally. Every single. Totally. Dog. Totally. So. And it, coming home, the feeling of coming home and seeing your dog oh, who's awesome. been missing is amazing. It's awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and and the amount of love and kindness and and we all know that when you know we've all had challenges in our lives when you've had like really tough sad or, or like tough moments, when your dog's there with you, you really have a friend who's with you, someone yeah. who cares about you. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and so, you, so you've got this loving creature, this domesticated yes. creature, who doesn't necessarily have to eat meat. Correct, yeah, right. you got it. I mean, sure, can they eat meat? Sure, so can we, right? right? Uh, but they don't have to, and in fact, they can really thrive on it too. Okay. Um, and so, so basically, a lot of this came to me when I was looking into case studies. I'm, I come from a science perspective, always, and uh, I read about this one dog called Bramble, longest living dog on record from the UK. Really? Yeah. Bramble ate lentils, rice, and yeast. Really? Blew my mind. Right. How long, so, how long did Bramble live to? 24 years. Wow. So Bramble was like, I think it was something like 160 years old in like human equivalent. <laughs> and so I was like, Good grief. what is this? I've never heard of a dog that lives 24 years, right? right. Most of us know dogs that live like from like 8 to 14 years of age. Like right. that's kind of the range that most dogs live. And the more I started to look into this, I was like, oh my God, diet. Like, oh yeah. The diet makes a huge difference in how long they live. Right. And how healthy they live. Um, so I started to look into this and then I came up with this idea of using plants and fungi. Right. So, so we brew fungi um, and we use, we use different types of fungi and plants. So we're a plant-based product. I, I tend to say plant-based because most people don't know what Fungi actually is, they think it's a plant. Uh, fungi, it's its own kingdom of life. Right. Uh, you know, we all eat mushrooms, we know what a fungi is, but most people think it's, it grows like a plant. What are the nutritional differences between plants and fungi? Pretty significant. So, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and so this is where it gets really, really interesting. So, um, when plants tend to be lower protein, right? Mo most of us know that, yeah. uh, and actually that can be a really good thing. Right. You know, especially if you're older, you have kidney issues, it's good to have a low protein diet. Right. Um, but, but the thing is, you know, Especially for dogs, most pet parents want a high-protein diet, right? Yes. Like that's something that they're excited about. Um, that's why these ancestral diets have been so popular. Right. Um, what's interesting is that fungi, especially the types of fungi that we use within our products, are high in protein. So mm. fungi have anywhere between 30 to 50 percent protein by right. by mass. Uh, meat has a good steak has 25 to 30 percent protein. Right. Right. So so fungi is actually higher in protein than meat. Interesting. That's why, that's why when we have like these like uh, mushroom burgers or whatever else, they have that savory like umami flavor. Right. It's, it's the protein that's in them. Oh, We, we actually detect that. Our, you know, our, our taste receptors detect the high protein levels. Is this just mushrooms in general? Or this is, is mushrooms in general okay. and so fungi in general. This is just a, as a general a class. A consistent class. A consistent class right. thing. Got and so, so the idea, I was just looking at this, I was like, why? Why are we using meat when we could use fungi instead? Right. It's high in protein, it's clean, it's, it's a complete protein. Right. So it has all the, the 10 essential amino acids that dogs need. Um, and so, and it has a very nice protein profile, amino acid profile. For those, for those people who are really into like the profiles of their proteins, right. it, plants have a tendency to have slightly incomplete amino acid profiles. Like they have more of one type of amino acid than the other. Okay. Um, uh, we, with fungi, it's a complete protein like meat. Oh, I see. Right. right. So, um, so this idea came to me. I was like, well, what if we used fungi and plants and made a high protein dog food? Right. Right. Something that could compete with ancestral diets. Like your dog is a wolf, have as much protein as a wolf has. Right. 
right? And, and that was basically what we ended up doing. We created a product that is clean, high protein. We basically started from the beginning. We we're like, if we were to build a product today, the 21st century, knowing what we know about uh, biomarkers in the blood, knowing what we know about the microbiome, mm. right? The microbiome, the data in the microbiome is only a couple years old. Mm. We're only just starting to figure out why a diversity of good bacteria and what type of bacteria and fungi in your gut is good for you or bad for you, right? Right. And, and it's the same for, for our furry friends, right? For, for dogs, it's the same. Like they can, like when they get diarrhea, might be something wrong with their, their microbiome, right. their gut. So, and and for, for those of us, for pet parents who, who really care about the digestive health of the animal, the easiest way to see if they're feeling good is, was their poop nice and solid? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If, it, if, if they have diarrhea, you know something's up. Something's up, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we started from the beginning. We crafted a food from scratch that was basically focused on maximal health and longevity, mm. right? And so that was like the vision that we had. Um, and so that's why we started with plant-based and uh, fungi-based diet and product. So how do you, uh, I imagine that the, uh, quite literally, the sniff test is going to be pretty important here. You got but, it, yes. That, you know, producing a product and then putting it in front of different dogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, two, well, I have two questions here. The first one is, how do you refine it so it's something that dogs actually want to eat? Because yep. it might yep. be good for them, yep. but... Yeah. They might not necessarily want it. Yeah. So, so, so basically, I had to answer this question too, right? So I, I come from the human world, right. uh, human food, human medicine, um, and I didn't know the answer to that. So mm. we basically, nor did uh, my fellow co-founder, our head of operations, Abril Estrada, she basically crafted an entirely new way of testing dog food. So um, we're a 100% cruelty-free right. uh, company. Uh, turns out the dog food industry, weirdly, tests on dogs in labs. Right. Right? So they basically literally take the food, they go, here's your latest chow, whatever flavor this is. We've added a new flavor. They're, they're these poor dogs that are in labs, usually beagles, who are basically tested on, live their entire lives in a lab, um, and just eat dog food. And afterwards, they, you know, they, they basically die in a lab, right? right. Uh, it's a horrible thing. Yeah, it's For those of us that love dogs, we're like, how is this even possible? So we basically started from scratch and said, okay, how do we do volunteer testing? So pet parents who have dogs at home, we basically reached out to, uh, to PETA to help us find a way of doing uh, uh, cruelty-free testing. Right. They connected with several professors at different uh, veterinary research institutes, and we crafted a strategy to do volunteer testing, and that's how we basically tested for um, uh, preference testing and acceptability. Right. So basically what we did was we, we tested with volunteer dogs. Uh, did they like the flavor of the food? We had many different variants of the food. We had, at first we had about 12 variants, and we got it down to about six variants of the flavors, and then eventually we got it down to one. Um, and, then we te- and then we tracked those dogs eating it for a month to see how they did with it. Oh, cool. Yeah. So and it's so, just narrowing it down. Narrowing it down. And so you basically... Uh, was, that was, multi- and was that multiple different breeds of dogs? Multiple different do breeds do- of dogs. I, mean, that's a, I guess a question. Do different dogs, different, different breeds of dogs have different kind of taste profiles that they, they enjoy? They do. But, you know, I learned something really interesting. So for me, this whole world of like, what do dogs like to eat, right? It, it, everyone knows what their dog lo- lo- loves to eat. Right. Um, What's interesting is every dog has a personality, like us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at first I was like, oh, you know, a husky, let's say a husky didn't eat the food mm. the first time. I was like, okay, huskies don't eat this, don't eat this food. Right. Uh, then the next husky eats it and loves it, right? And then it's like, wait a minute, what's going on? And suddenly I realized, I was like, actually, the huskies, the German, they're all personalities, like us. They're yeah. individual and they have different taste pr- profiles. Like some dogs love to eat. Uh, strawberries hmm. or, or, or broccolis, some hate it, yep. right? Some dogs will eat dry food, some dogs only eat wet food, yep. right? Some dogs have a preference to only eat fish, they won't eat anything else, right. or only eat chicken. And, and so, so what I realized is going into it, um, 
dogs had preferences. Um, we, we haven't published this. Uh, we actually did recently do a study. We haven't published it yet. But with, with our small-scale studies, we've been finding very high acceptance. Right. So what we're finding is basically 100% of the pet parents that we did volunteer testing with, they were blinded. They wanted to order the food. Right. Right. They, they literally said, after the study, they were like, what is this food? My dog loves it. How can I order it? Right. Which we didn't expect going no. in. Right? I mean, with, to give an example, so with the dog treats, we developed a dog treats that had 90% acceptance. So 90% acceptance was like, 90% of the dogs would eat our dog treats. The wild Earth dog treats, 90% of them love it. 10%, for one reason or another, don't really like it. Mm. Uh, we didn't see that at all with our dog food. Really? Yeah, and I don't fully understand it, to be totally wow. honest. Um, I think, so I have a theory. I think that the dogs can smell when there's something bad in their food. And so when they smell our food, our food is clean. Right. So our food is plants and fungi. That's it. Interesting. And I think that they can smell when there's something slightly off. If, if you imagine these rendering plants, literally they're, they're somewhere between hundreds to thousands of animals in a dog's food. Right. right. When you feed a dog, it's all mixed together. All this meat is mixed together. Yeah. And there's dozens of potential uh, animals in it. And so, uh, so when they eat it, if they sniff something that's slightly off in a little bit of the meat, they may not want it as much. Right, right. Right? And so I suspect that they can sniff our food and say, oh, there's nothing bad here. And then they're, they're just more likely to eat it. So this is fascinating. So yeah. you've obviously, you've got this product. Yeah. Um, it, it's going, you're taking pre-orders. Yes, we're taking. it's going on sale. Yeah, this late. month, we're taking pre-orders. And, so, and it'll be shipped later in the yeah, year, right? And we're at wildearth.com, so people can sign up so for a newsletter. And uh, towards the end of this month, we'll be launching, launching. So let's dig into Shark Tank a little bit. Because yes. I want to talk about that. And then I also want to, tap your brains a little bit on some of the broader implications for uh, bioscience in general. Yes, um, and we can go definitely go deep so in bioscience, uh, yeah. How does Shark Tank get in the mix here? Like, I, a lot of people would love to go on Shark Tank. Yeah. have never been on Shark Tank. Yeah. How did this process begin? Uh, so that was kind of a, a strange one. <laughs> um, so, so basically, uh, I was working with Florian, our chief marketing officer, and he was like, look, we, 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 need, to, we, need, to, we need to go on Shark Tank. He was really excited about Shark Tank. He was like, we need to go on Shark Tank. We need to tell America um, that about our product. Yeah. And uh, we just raised some money, and I was like, I really don't want to go on national television and look like a total fool. Right. Right? Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's potentially higher risk. Totally high well, risk. But also potentially high reward, right? High, so. high risk, high reward. But you go on there, and, and they tell you, with Shark Tank, this is real. This is not, you know, some shows are like acted. Shark Tank is real. Like, you go there, and they basically say, the moment the, the big doors open, you know, when you walk down that hallway, the moment the big doors open, the sharks are in front of you, it's go. If you fall on your face, they keep, keep going, because they're going to film you. Right. And then they're going to present it in any way they want. Right. right. And so I was like, wow. So if I totally mess up, and I look like a fool, several million people are going to see me in prime time, looking yeah. like a fool. And they're going to they're gonna think of your brand. And they're, they're going to think, think of our of brand as a boom. foolish brand, and we're done. <laughs> so I was like, I, I basically said, I actually said no three times. I was like, we're not applying. We're not applying. I'm not going on there. I'm not an actor. I don't want to be on national TV. Uh, and then in the end, Florian convinced me. He's like, look, is this a mission or is this not a mission? Uh, and I was like, it's a mission. Like, I think most people don't know what's going on in the dog food industry, right? Yeah. Um, and he was like, well, and if it is, you need to take the risk. We need to take the risk. And we need to tell people, and we just ho have to hope that some one of the sharks um, really connects with our mission. Uh, and so I was like, okay. So we applied. Um, 
I, I mean, I went through a whole bunch of screenings. Uh, there are a lot of people that applied to Shark Tank. I think something like, like 50,000 people or something applied to Shark Tank. I believe it, yeah. Uh, it's like a huge, huge number of people right. uh, per year apply to Shark Tank. And so for whatever reason, the people, at the, the producers at Shark Tank found our story really interesting. Um, they made me pitch them multiple times. So I had to do phone pitches, uh, video pitches. They actually make you film yourself and like do a pitch. You know, hello, sharks. My right. name is Ryan and I'm here to... And so they this is all great practice. It's as well. all great practice. Yeah. <laughs> so they make you pitch. I mean, I did it. I did it like I don't know five times, six times for them. Right. Um, eventually, they invited us in to, um, to to do like a pre-run, see how it would go, and then and then they were like, yeah, you've been you've been accepted. You'll pitch the sharks. Right. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I, I better was, not mess this up. What was the what was the time period between knowing you were accepted and then flying out to LA? It was, was it about, in LA that they filmed. Yeah, it was in LA. It was in LA. So it was actually in the Sony Pictures Studios. So it was it was about three to four months, roughly. Right. But it was pretty intense, three to four months, because they're all business. They're like. When you move to from from one sex like literally week on week things are moving constantly. Mm. Uh, can, can we see this? And they do due diligence on you as well as company. They do? Yeah, they they check you out. They check the company out to some level. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So they when you get to a certain level, they're like, okay, let's make sure this this team and this company are real, and then they they start checking you out. Um, and so 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 basically, like we you know, like I went on. I I, I was like, okay, I'm going on there. Uh, probably the most stressed I've ever been. Yeah. Which is, you know, I thought I was like, okay, I, I know how to pitch investors. I've done this thing before. Yeah. Uh, turns out uh, this is a whole nother level. Yeah. Well, when Mark Cuban sat in the room. When Mark Cuban sat in the room. I think your blood pressure changes at least a little bit. Totally. 100%. 100%. So, so what ended up happening um, was, uh, so the doors opened. Um, all the sharks were there. Uh, I, I kind of... Um, I just I just went. So I practiced my lines uh, religiously. Like I literally I don't know how many hundreds of times I basically said my lines over the over like a two or three week period. Um, I was basically pitching my lines to everyone and anyone that would listen. Right. Um, and I pit you know then my lines came out um, hoping that I didn't look like a fool. One thing that I noticed was as as that was the first time I saw the sharks. You walk into the room and literally. On TV, you see the five sharks, but what you don't see is the camera crews, the, the lighting people, yeah, all, everything the sound, it. everyone's that's all around them moving around, and it's like a busy scene, and you're trying to say memorize lines and stay focused and stay in the moment. So, so that, that was one thing I was going to ask you. So when you when you went out there, that yeah. was the first time you saw the sharks? That was the first time. You didn't get to yeah. shake hands with them beforehand no, or anything like that? No, you're actually not allowed to. So right. um, the, they want that to be the first time you ever meet the sharks. Yeah, they want to capture that reaction. They want to capture right. that moment. Right. It's TV, you know, it's TV. They want, they want the, the hottest, spiciest, hopefully you mess it all up and it's great TV. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, so I went there and, uh, and they were rough with me, I'm not gonna lie. Like it was, um, what they don't show on, on, on TV is that, you, you know, like our, our session went on for about 40, 45 minutes. Uh, that was, I was also gonna ask this, is how much, because it's obviously cut. It is. It's obviously edited. Yeah. And this is, look, it's entertainment, right? They care, it's number one, about yeah. being interesting to the viewer. Yeah. And you're next. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're the show. You're the show. So, so you said it was about 45 minutes? About 45 minutes. And what they did was they, they basically sliced it up to you know, the, the choiciest cuts hmm. um, for television, clearly. And, uh, and it was just, I mean, you know, it was really intense standing there in front of these sharks who are used to people pitching them literally for a decade. 
um, pitching them hundreds and hundreds of different companies. Uh, and they were really, really tough on me. Uh, Mr. Wonderful was really funny, really tough. Right. Damon was really tough. Uh, you know, he loved the, the pet space, but he was just very tough on me. Um, and there were, you know, Lori was amazing as per usual. Yeah. She just didn't understand the market space. Uh, right. Matt Higgins was also a great shark. He just, he was really focused on human food, not pet food. Right. Um, and you know, basically everyone started to tap out and say, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. And I was like, well, at least I didn't totally blow up or start yelling at one of the sharks or do anything really silly. Yeah. Um, and, and I actually kind of had a kind of a fun time, uh, especially with Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary. He kept <laughs> making jokes about vegans and stealing the meat from dogs right. and would they wear, uh, would they wear Birkenstocks and, and tie-dyes, you know, if they started to eat our food. And uh, it was hilarious, right? And he's a really funny guy. He started complaining that on t- he has like a, a plant-based Tuesdays because he goes to have uh, dinner with his son. Right. And his son's girlfriend is apparently a plant-based vegan. Right. And he's like, everyone's going vegan now. And so, you know, so he totally got it. He just didn't really totally want to go that. He's fine with, you know, meatless Tuesdays or whatever. So, right. Um, but then right at the end, in, in very typical Mark Cuban style, I was like, okay, I'm done here. Um, you know, at least I didn't make a total fool of myself. Yeah. There we go. You know, yeah. America will see me pitching. I yeah. failed. You gave it a good whack. I gave it the best go I could for, for the team, for the company, for the mission. Right. Uh, that's it. And Mark Cuban was just sitting there, and he was like, I'll make you an offer. And I was like, what? It, yeah, it just it blew my mind. I was like, what? <laughs> I, I, was, I was ready for him to be like, I'm out. Have a good one, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so he, he basically... Uh, he made us an offer. It was a tough offer. Um, basically, if, if I agreed the deal, I'd have a risk of a big chunk of the deal, about half of it coming out of me personally. Um, oh, but wow. I was Yeah, but I was willing to do it because the value that Mark Cuban would add to the company, I just thought, this is going to be immense. Oh, um, you know, I, mean, I mean, I may be going against some unwritten rule here, but I would argue that he's by far the most valuable of the Sharks. I he's agree. certainly got the most brand recognition in terms of who he is, I would argue. Yeah. Uh, he's a smart guy. I mean, that'd yeah. be huge, right? Yeah, and I've, I've been a fan of his for you know a decade. Literally oh, watching yeah. him on TV, I'm like, oh my god! And he always comes up with the most interesting, insightful yeah. comments. Fascinating, fascinating yeah. stuff. Because uh, he he's never totally predictable. Like right. with Mark, when you watch him on the show, the others have their kind of characters, and they stay within that. You know, you, you always know Mr. Wonderful wants exactly wants some dividends or something. You know, yeah. he wants he wants like uh, royalties. Uh, but Mark is always like, you never quite know where he's going to go with something. No. But he, but he also seems like a real straight shooter to me as he well. He is, 100%. And so basically, he was really interested in this alternative protein uh, future for pets, right? He, he was intrigued by the fact he knew that there was a huge need for alternative proteins, for sustainability, for our pets. The, the health aspect was really interesting to him as well. Yeah. Uh, and so he's like, and, and he, he himself, like, he loves every type of meat and protein and everything, but he just really connected with the health and the... Uh, the sustainability ang- angle of the of the product, um, and we did a deal. Killer, and it was for five five hundred fifty k. Yeah, it right? was one of the larger uh, deals uh, in my season, season ten, uh, and, and the tank. That's incredible. It was mind blowing, honestly. How, how did you feel when you walked out of that room I, afterwards? I, I felt you, euphoric. It was it was kind of like, did this just happen? Did, you know, I, I was like, I, maybe I dreamed this before walking onto the stage. Maybe I'm like hallucinating right now. Um, did, did your did your co-founder explode with smugness about this being the right thing to do? Oh, well, so so after some skepticism, yeah, I'll tell you the one thing that was like, so after pitching, 
Mark came up to me, he's like, okay, let's do the deal. And he gave me a hug, right? right. When we were still, it was the best hug I've ever received. I was like, oh my God, I'm hugging Mark Cuban. We did a deal. I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> That's so, incredible. Yeah, so, so, so it was just, it blew my mind. So um, yeah, so, so, so what ended up happening, Mark was like, hey, um, we're gonna be working a lot together. And I was like, sure, Mark. I yeah. mean, you're a billionaire. You have a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Sure, we'll work a lot. And true to his word, I talked to Mark pretty much every other week. What? Yeah. I was curious about that because I, I had assumed that, you know, they do the deal and then basically, you know, once a quarter, you'll have to do a 10 minute pitch over a video conference to yeah. him to give him an update about what's going on and yep. how, how you're performing. But you're basically dealing with effectively a manager that works for him who's, who's going to be on your quote unquote account or it, it, for sure. portfolio. That, that was my assumption uh, too. Right. I was so, like, I was so like, you're actually. No, so he gets like he he wants me to, to to tell him where we are every week. Challenges, good things. Like he likes the challenges because he he thinks he can really help like unblock things. Yeah. And to be honest, uh, you know, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, we rarely have mentors, right? Like yeah. when we're building things on our own, sometimes it can be feel very lonely. Yeah. Um, and, and and it's been hard for me personally to find mentors, people that I really think I can learn a lot from. Uh, I think Mark's kind of fallen in that in that category because he's tough. He's not an easy guy. Right. Um, but and he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna beat me up when I do something stupid. Right. Uh, but the thing is, he provides incredible guidance. Right. You know. That, but that's what he's there to do. Right. That's what he's there he's to there. do. Yeah. I, I, it, it would, I can't imagine how cool it would be having a mentor such as him because I mean, a he's done it. Yeah. But b I, I just really admire his. I admire the tonality in which he operates. And I've obviously never met him, I've never worked for him, but um, what a great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, he's a straight shooter, right? Like yeah. he'll tell you, you're doing something stupid, he's gonna tell you right there, right there and then, it's right. like, that's stupid, don't do that. And I'm guessing that he's probably also, like we all, we've all got levels of naivety yeah. or levels of just inexperience. Yeah. I'm guessing that he's just coming in with a baseball bat and whacking all of that stuff out, making you into a lean leader, your team into a lean leader. 100%. Lead, into a lean, 100%. Yeah. And his team, he has a great team as well that right. works with him when they invested. And so he does have a team that works. And actually, they help us a lot. So, right. um, you know, I mean, their team, we talk to their team at least once a week. Right. Someone from his team. And so they really help us an incredible amount. So uh, it, uh, honestly, he's been probably one of the most surprising investors out of all the investors that invested in us. Right. He's probably been the most surprising. Wow, yeah, I really great. expected very little out of that investment and he's been one of the most helpful investors. It's always great when you meet people like that and the yeah. experience is better than you expected. Like it reminds me a little bit of, I had the opportunity to interview um, Henry Rollins, and then oh, amazing! Uh, and also this guy called Bruce Dickinson, who's the lead singer in Iron Maiden. I'm a huge oh, Iron yeah. Maiden fan, and I interviewed both of them on the phone separately. Yeah, and particularly with Dickinson, I was a little nervous because I was thinking, if this doesn't go well, this is I'm gonna. This, I, I mean, I'm not gonna go and shoot myself, but it's gonna be a a pretty serious bummer. And uh, everything that I wanted those guys to be, they were, and more. Oh, really? They were engaging. They were thoughtful. They made time. Amazing. Like at the end of my call with Dickens, with Bruce Dickinson, at the end of our half an hour that we had scheduled with yeah. his PR people, I was like, well, I, you know, I want to respect your time. I'll, I'll get off the phone. Yeah. And he said, he said, I've got nothing to do. Do you want to keep chatting? I was like, amazing. Yeah, I've got one million questions for you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, want to, I want to switch gears. I know yeah. we're, we're running out of time yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, so in recent years, there's been uh, products such as Soylent, 
for sure. Uh, cachava, like mm. these kind of meal supplement, supplements, yeah. or, or and they always say this is not a replacement. Yes, but some people treat them in that manner, yeah. and it seems to me that you know we're we're at this interesting period of innovation where the question no longer really is so much can we do something. We can find technological solutions to uh, to problems, societal problems especially. Um, but where there's a big question around like sh how we utilize this technology responsibly. We're yes. seeing this with with artificial intelligence and, yeah. the, and the concerns around that. We're seeing this with facial recognition yeah. and its utilization by governments and large companies. And again, it kind of gets back to those things aren't messing with your food, yes. right? Yeah. And what you put in your body. Yeah. And you're kind of dipping into this world of, of making more responsibly sourced and produced pet food. Yes. Um, but there's lots of people who want to get into all levels of how we, how, we, how we take care of our bodies and how we feed ourselves. What do you think is the line in terms of the ethics of how you do that? Um, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a really tough question, yeah. right? So, so I've kind of waded into this like sustainability but science-based type eating. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I honestly don't know very much about uh, the healthiness of, of a product like Soylent. Like, yeah. I think it's a great little beverage. Right. I enjoy it personally. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd try and live off of it. Right. I probably wouldn't. Um, and again, to be fair, they always say you shouldn't do that. Yeah. But then you get, I think you get a lot of people, and I know some of them who live in around here yeah. who say, you know, I basically have Soylent for breakfast and for lunch, and then I have a meal at the end of the day. Like, is that a good idea? Yeah. And there's a whole set of like social elements of going out to dinner and, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff as yeah. well. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I do think that if we're looking for data for us, for humans, yeah, uh, a whole food plant-based diet has incredibly strong um, data behind it. Mm. Right. Whole food plant-based is not quite as exciting for some of us. Um, I still love French fries. I still love burgers. I still plant-based burgers, but still burgers, yeah. processed foods. Yeah. Uh, but if, if we're honest, it's like it's having your salad, having, you know, nice vegetables and fruits and all this sort of stuff. So when you look at uh, health outcomes in humans, uh, there are areas called blue zones. I don't know if you're familiar with no. the blue zones. What's a blue zone? Blue zones are areas around the world like Okinawa in Japan or Loma Linda in California where people have a tendency to live past 100 years. They have a higher than average tendency to live over 100 years. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, they're called blue zones. Right. So these are zones where... For some reason, people have a tendency to live much longer than the normal, the average human lifespan. I'm guessing there's not a lot of Taco Bells in those there's areas. There's not a lot of Taco Bells, <laughs> you got it. And, and, there's, and there's like this focus on exercise, community, right. very important, community, right. having friends, having social events. Um, some of the, like, some of these groups, like the, the my favorite example is uh, the uh, the elderly in Okinawa, Japan. Right. Um, you know, they, they still go into the ocean and they, they, they gather their own seaweed and they, they, they hunt a quick fish and they have that as part of seasoning for their food. Interesting. So most of these societies are plant-based societies, meaning that if they eat a little bit of animal protein, it's literally just for flavor. Or so that's consistent in these blue zones that it's tend consistent. to be plant-based? Yeah, they tend to be plant-based. So right. uh, Loma Linda... Uh, is actually part of the Seventh-day Adventist group. So right. it's a, they have a large Seventh-day Adventist community. Right. So it's a, a, a Christian community. So they have community, and, but it's also a vegetarian community because the Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian. Hmm. So you start to see these like trends. Uh, the people in Okinawa, they're not vegetarian, but they are, I would say they're mostly plant-based. So right. they eat some fish, 
They eat a little bit of animal-based protein, but it, it's, again, mostly for seasoning and flavor. It's not the majority of their, of their meal. And I'm guessing that this is primarily fresh food, right? This, this is, is fresh Because there's a yeah. huge difference. Like, a, a bunch of members of my family are, are really into the outdoors and hunting yeah. and all the rest yeah. of it. They place a lot of credence on, like, the freshness of, 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 the, of the meat that yeah. they, yep. that they yep. I was going to say procure, but yeah, let's procure. be honest, they kill. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, compared to what you get in a supermarket. Yeah. So. Well, and by the way, I actually think so, you know, and this is probably a bit of a controversial thing, but I actually think that the hunters who go out there and hunt their own meat and eat their own meat, I think that's probably one of the most ethically sourced types of meat right. there are. Yeah. Right? Because, I mean, those animals are living their natural lives. They're in the forests or, you know, they're, they're, they're other than that moment of where they get shot or whatever, yeah. but at least they get, it's not a waste of an animal. Right. Right? That animal is consumed and it's used for sustenance. Yeah. versus, you know, factory farming, which I think is a horrible it's thing. It's horrendous, yeah. Yeah. And so so for me, it, you know, I'm 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 100% plant-based, uh, but, you know, uh, I I definitely see the ethical difference between those two types of I didn't know this as well until I moved over here and met, you know, met my 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 uh my father-in-law and my brother in like until yeah. I got to, really not got yeah. to know them and that a huge amount of this is, you know, they won't take a shot unless they know it's going to kill the animal, mm-hmm. like, immediately. Yeah. Um, it's all about, it's, it's, it's the kind of the local habitat and making sure there's the right number of animals for them to have a healthy lifestyle in that habitat. It's not just, you know, going out with a gun and blasting. No, exactly. Which is what I think a lot of people think of hunting. It's still not for me. I'd never yeah. want to do it myself. Yeah, me neither, yeah. Because yeah, the hear idea you. of what, killing something is horrendous to yeah. me. Yeah, But I, I have a lot more respect for that whole culture than I used mm-hmm. to. And I agree mm-hmm. with you yeah. that, like, it's certainly a lot better than these horrendous factory farms. Yeah, so. I mean, those animals are in misery from the moment they're born to the right. moment they die. Yeah. Usually a, pre- a very early death. Those are mostly young animals right. that, that are slaughtered. And you see these crazy big chickens, yep. like these these ridiculous specimens. Yeah, and they're so. not healthy animals. Like, they collapse under their own weight. Yeah. So clearly, I mean, it sounds like a lot of your philosophy here is that you're about, um, is it more about taking natural materials, such mm. as fungi and yeah. such as plants, yeah. and engineering them in such a way that they can be as nutritious and as flavorful as possible? It's not about inventing brand new food, synthetic food in a lab, is that Yeah, correct? well, so I, I think, so our, the current philosophy of Wild Earth is most definitely that. We're taking natural foods that exist in the environment today that are healthy, right. um, and making cleaner, healthier products. Um, at the same time, there's still this huge problem where we have, there are people who, for whatever reason, are, are just gonna say, I don't care, I want my dog to have beef, or some or pork. Right. Um, and for them, I'm happy to use biotechnology, to provide like slaughter-free alternatives, clean, sustainable slaughter-free alternatives. And that would be lab-grown meat or clean meat or cellular meat. It has a bunch of different names. I don't think we've zoned in on exactly where that is. Do you um, think that will be attractive to that crowd, though? Like, do I you don't think- know. It's a really interesting question. Because yeah. I get the impression there are just, I mean, I'll be honest with you, yeah. I thought something similar. Yeah. Before I came over here, I thought, I don't know if I could give our new puppy um, a plant-based diet because honestly I didn't know much about it now I know a lot more about yeah. it and now I'm way more open to the idea of it because there's yeah. some data behind it yeah. but it seems like a lot of what you're doing is really there's a marketing problem there like there's helping people to understand that this is actually this isn't just this isn't part of the of the big vegan lobby exactly right? exactly this is not <laughs> this is not a vegan thing this is this is so so this is what this is what drew me to the problem right in the pet food industry that you know 
uh, for human diets, everyone is all over the place, right? There's paleo, vegan, you know. Uh, everyone. Yeah, low fat, high fat, like various different views on it. Um, with pet food, um, it's about clean food. It's about clean protein. It's about clean sustenance. Yeah. And so uh, what I found personally is that when I talk to pet parents, almost all of them are feeding their, their pets conventional uh, conventional pet food, right? Yes. Um, when I talk to them about how clean this product can be and how much healthier it can be, um, it's very interesting to them from all over the place. One of the things that I found most interesting, some of our early customers for our treats were actually people that uh, fed their dogs the raw diet. I don't know if you're familiar with oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It literally raw meat. Right. And I, I didn't understand it at first. I was like, wait, you know this is a 100% plant-based product. It's clean, but it's 100% plant-based. They're like, that's exactly why we feed raw, because we want clean. And the, the, the raw is typically human grade as well. Right. So, so it, you know, these pet parents are looking for clean products. Yes. And, and so there's this, these funny overlaps that start to happen that it's, it's, it's really not a vegan product. It is a clean product. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So it sounds like you're, if I understand you correctly, in terms of the, the ethics of how we use this kind of technology yeah. is that it should be used for, there should be an element of natural composition in there, For right? sure, for um, sure. What's your take on, you know, we're seeing, of course, companies like, is it the Beyond? Beyond meat? and Impossible. Uh, yeah, like all of these, these, these plant-based burgers that yeah. where they, they've claimed that they can uh, replicate that, that, not just the flavor, but that yeah. texture of meat. And I've tried a few of these. And what did you think? I think it's close. I don't yeah. think it's there yet, but I think it's pretty close. It's certainly satisfying to eat. Yeah. Uh, and it's way different to eating a veggie burger or something yes. like that. Yeah. But that's a different category in my mind. Yeah. And I love that we're seeing like McDonald's are starting to explore mm -hmm. these. Burger King, I think, are already yeah, shipping them. Already shipping, selling in stores. Uh, yeah. And they can't make enough. From what I understand, is it Impossible Foods? They can't make enough product. No, they can't make enough product. Yeah. So the, the Impossible Whopper. So right. that's actually a thing. So it's a plant-based Whopper made by Impossible Foods. Right. Mind-blowing. Great marketing, by the way. I love the marketing. Beautiful product. Um, yeah. It's now nationwide. Yeah. Right. So so people and they they can't keep enough of it in stock. People love it. Right. Right, so it's it, we're in a, we're in a different time. Like yeah. things have changed. How do you think that we? Um, mm. How do you think you bridge that? Like, how do you think you get the, you know, the hardened meat eater who eats barbecue? They live in Texas. Yes. Like they, they only want to give that. Like they give their their the family dog fresh meat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you think you get to that audience? I, so I think talking to them. Right. right, and so so I actually um, I actually was in Texas uh, about about six months ago, and I talked to about 400 veterinarians. Many of them, you know, are from Texas. They're yeah. you know they're they they make meat, you know, and so um, they basically said, look, you know, there's I talked to a couple of veterinarians, um, and they're like, there's nothing wrong with this product. I get it. It makes sense. And and I was expecting a lot more pushback from the veterinarians, and I just didn't see it. Mm. We're like, look, as long as you've made it nutritionally balanced, as long as it's done under AFCO guidelines, which is the kind of the, the governing body that, that, um, that covers like pet food, um, right. you know, we're good with it. And the fact that it's a high protein product is, is a benefit, right? And so um, I tend to focus on first having conversations with people. I actually want, I want, I want, you know, that guy in Texas that only eats barbecue and feeds his dog, you know, uh, a meaty, high-protein diet, I want to talk about that. Yeah. Right? I want to say, okay, great. How, how can we help improve the health of your, your dog? Is that interesting? Right. Improving the health of your dog? Yeah. Because he'll love his dog just as much as we all do, right? Yeah. And so if you want your dog to be healthier, 
um, we have a product here that we know is not going to have the contamination you get in some of these other meat-based products. Yeah. I think it's I think it's phenomenal what you're doing. I'm I'm just thrilled that you're. I mean, just a you're 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 one of the smartest guys I know. Just your just your track record. I mean, I went through a small element of that at the beginning of this podcast, but your experience here, the company that you're building here, clearly the confidence from Mark Cuban and his team. Yeah. I mean, I can only see bright things, and we'll have healthier pets for it. So. Beautiful. Thank you, John. Thank I, you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, man. All right. Beautiful.